Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Everybody, welcome to Dan Snow's History Hit. In 1682, at the Exeter Assizes in the West Country of England, there were witch trials. The Biddeford witch trials. They resulted in hangings for three women, Temperance Lloyd, Mary Trembles and Susanna Edwards. Needless to say, folks, the evidence against them was pretty hazy. In fact, it was pretty much non-existent. It involved, and I joke you not, the widow of a prosperous Devon merchant being frightened by a magpie appearing at the window of her house and assuming that it was an emissary of the devil sent by one of her neighbours. Yep, well, weeks later, those neighbours were dead. They were the last women that we think, the last well-documented cases of women being executed for witchcraft in England. It is a wild story. What was going on in the 17th century with witches and witchcraft trials? I've talked to Susanna Lipscomb and others in the past about this upsurge of witchcraft accusations in this period. But today I'm talking to the very brilliant John Callow, who's written really widely on witchcraft. He's a perfect guide to take us through this bizarre subject. If you wish to listen to these other podcasts without the ads, that's the good thing, without the ads, for a very small subscription, you can do that. It's a wonderful thing. You go to historyhit.tv, historyhit.tv, where you can listen to all these podcasts without the ads. But you also, I mean, this is where it's just too good to be true, you also get unfettered access, unlimited access to hundreds of history documentaries, with more going up all the time. We've got two a week going up at the moment. We're about to increase that because things are going pretty well. So we've got Netflix for history on there. We've got all these episodes of the podcast without the ads. Please head over to historyhit.tv and subscribe today. And if you do that, you'll get 30 days free when you subscribe. So you can check it out for free. There you go. But in the meantime, everybody, here is John Callow telling us about the last witch trial. Enjoy. John, thank you very much for coming on the podcast. Oh, it's a pleasure. It's wonderful to be with you. Why was the 17th century such a time of witchcraft trials? What was going on there? Well, there were lots of things, really. I think with witchcraft trials, the popular imagination seems to root them a lot earlier. But as you say, it's the 17th century where they become really pressing. And the century falls really into two halves. The first half which was one of intense religious crisis and turmoil typified by the Thirty Years' War. Whether you were a Catholic or a Protestant really did define you. The second half of the century we think of as the beginnings of the Age of Reason, the beginnings of the European Enlightenment maybe, the Age of Locke and Boyle and Newton. So the fact that the witch trials erupt and straddle this divide is really quite something. There are lots of reasons, I think. Changes in the way charity was given to the poor, religious changes, and changes actually about the way that God was seen. As the world started to open up and God began to be removed from human affairs, a lot of people got worried about it. And one way to defend a belief in God 
And one way to make God still relevant to -to day-to-day happenings was to look for the presence of the devil, to look for signs and portents and the working of demonic magic in everyday life. I never thought about that. That's fascinating. So tell me about these particular women, and why is it women? Well, that's a really big question. It's not all women. Somewhere about 20 to 25% of all people across Europe convicted and executed were actually men. But women, because we can't discount misogyny, it is a patriarchal society, it is a very top-down society, we do have a Judeo-Christian culture that talks about Eve being the fount of evil. We do have the Bible as a thing that everybody read that has female witches in it, most notably the Witch of Endor. But I think more than that, and cross-fertilising with that and promoting it, is the simple fact that witchcraft is a domestic crime. The butter doesn't churn, the baby sickens in the cradle, the cattle go sick or lame in the fields. So if you're looking at a crime scene, who are going to be the people around? Poaching is a male crime. Witchcraft, because it affects the hearth and the home, and when suspects are looked for in the hearth and the home, tends to be associated with women. And there's no police force in that period, so how are you getting done for witchcraft? Well, you're getting done, effectively, by the information of your neighbours. That's what the tensions that erupted into the Biddeford witch trial and almost every other non-political witch trial were about. Tensions over people begging, as happened in Biddeford, exchanges with neighbours, curses, hard words, all of those kinds of things that could lead to complaint. And it's wrong to think of witchcraft trials happening in an instant. Very often the tensions, very often the rounds that contribute to them have been boiling on for maybe 10, 15, 20 years. So Temperance Lloyd, the arch-witch, as she was described in one of the Biddeford pamphlets, had been run in to the local authorities in Biddeford three times before she was actually convicted and executed in a period that ranged from 1671 up to 1682. So that's slightly more than a decade. So people get the name of a witch for whatever reason, the ability to look at people in a slightly disconcerting way, to have a scolding tongue, to have a bad reputation, and that tag sticks. And in times of tension, in times of breakdown, in times when somebody's really got it in for you, that's when you get shot to the authorities and bad things can happen. Right. And the other thing about the 17th century is it's a time of climate crisis, political upheaval. So do you think it's these are women who are bearing the brunt of just very, very tough times? In large measure, yes. We can say, though, that almost every time is a time of dislocation and horrible things happening. It depends where you look. The thing about the 17th century, though, is all of this, and certainly the mid-17th century, all of this is tied up in a big bundle. You get the loads. So Biddeford goes through the Civil War, then it goes through Plague, It goes through, as you rightly say, the mini ice age. This is precisely the time the Thames is freezing up and we have the wonderful frost fairs that so enlightened and enlivened Stuart England. So it's an odd mixture. And the fascinating thing I think about the Biddeford case is that Biddeford is a boomtown. It's an Atlantic port. It threatens to eclipse Bristol for the American trade. Its citizens had far more in common with people in the American colonies up the Chesapeake 
than they actually did with folks in Lancashire or Suffolk, or even Kent for that matter, because communications were so good and rapid. So tobacco, fortunately at that period, the slave trade hasn't risen its ugly head. Tobacco is enriching the town, and it's a boom town. And that means there are haves and there are have-nots. Traditional charity breaks down, and our three women of Biddeford, Temperance Lloyd, Susanna Edwards and Mary Trembles, are right at the bottom of the pile who lose out on absolutely every score. They're completely marginalised. So I think that shake-up of society, where the rich do really well and the poor do really badly, is also underpinning the witch-trial dynamic. So Biddeford's a boomtown. Tell me about these women. Who were they and how on earth did they get into this situation? Well, the three Biddeford witches are the poorest of the poor. They're marginal, Dan, in every conceivable manner. They're marginal in terms of their gender. They're women in a patriarchal society. They're women on their own. Their families have either left them. In the case of Mary Trembles, she was a spinster. The other two had liaisons and kids, but their menfolk had left them about 20 years before the trials. They're marginal because of their age. They're elderly. But above all, they're marginal because of their poverty. When you look at the trial records and the accounts of the North Brothers, the judge who wrote everything down, he overestimates their age. He's talking about these women, saying that they're absolutely ancient. They haven't got a tooth between them. They look like something out of the pages of Shakespeare. He says if an artist had to draw a witch, he would find no better archetypes than these three hags. But actually, Temperance Lloyd was only barely 60, and Susanna Edwards was a little bit younger. So a hard life of unremitting grime had borne all of them down, prematurely aged them. They had the hatred of their neighbours over simmering rows over poverty. They were just unfortunate. And I think what turned them into witches was the fact that they couldn't beg in an acceptable way. They tended to colour their begging with curses, with rows. They took it too far. And I think it may even be in Temperance Lloyd's case that actually, when she began to get herself a name as a witch, she found it helped in getting charity off others. And she profoundly unnerved people. One of the stories about her, it's almost like something out of the Disney cartoon. She got lucky and she'd been able to glean a little uh, basket full of apples and the child of a rich young woman stole one of the apples and walked off the quayside. So the old woman ran after, remonstrated with the mum, who laughed in her face, because, of course, to the young mother, a matter of a halfpenny or whatever the apple was, was absolutely nothing. But to Temperance Lloyd, it meant the difference between going hungry. So she curses, and what happens, lo and behold, the child sickens and dies, and it's seen as her being the person who actuated this. So it's poverty and incredible bad luck that gets them to the scaffold, coupled with the fact that they don't deny it. At no point do they say no to the questioning. If they'd have ever just either said nothing or mounted some sort of defence or not fallen out with each other, then they might have been saved the tragedy. That was not the inciting incident, was it? The child falling Or was it just a whole miasma of allegations? There were a raft of allegations over a decade. The trigger really is over Grace Thomas, who's a relatively well-to-do spinster who takes sick from some sort of nervous disease 
in the winter of 1681, beginning of 1682. And she is disturbed, or the servants of the house are disturbed. She's had a sleepless night, she fears she's dying, and the servants are terrified because a magpie comes tapping and rapping at the chamber window and gets in. And it flies around, and of course the scareder they get, the scareder the bird gets, until it finally flits out. And over the course of the day, and then being unsettled, the thing of the magpie, or as they say, the thing in the appearance of a magpie, meaning possibly a familiar spirit or an emissary of the devil, grows and grows and grows. As bad luck would have it, just as they're discussing this, just as the invalid has been calmed down, just as the family is taking stock, they hear something outside the window, literally eavesdropping, and Temperance Lloyd sticks her head up. They shoo her away, but she becomes fixed in their mind, and her appearance and the bird's appearance become really uncanny. So they shifted this idea of the shape-changing woman, and things get worse. You know, a child's doll is found on the bed, and that's seen as a symptom of image magic that Temperance Lloyd could have put there herself. So it magnifies and magnifies and magnifies. And it has to be said, it's magnified also by the physicians in the town, who actually say when they can't come up with a remedy for the ailments of a group of youngish women who are suffering, they say, well, have you thought about witchcraft? And from there, people begin to freelance justice. They look to bring in witch hunters from the West Country. And at that point, the authorities have to act because they're not going to have justice privatised. And at that point, it becomes really serious how they keep hold of a town that's politically and religiously split from top to bottom. Uh, and of course, these towns, they become famous during the Civil War, don't they? But they are very split along religious grounds as well. They're utterly split. If you think this is a period where the Whigs and the Tories are at each other's throats, this is Monmouth country. The town fathers are always looking for Monmouth supporters. In fact, after the Rye House plot, they arrest some poor old soldier thinking he was one of the conspirators and send him off to London. And it's only when this poor fella gets to be examined by Charles II and they realise that the person they're looking for actually had two eyes rather than one, they realise they made a horrible mistake. So the town is split. You've got a seething religious underground who are very strong. The dissenters in Biddeford are really, from the time of the Civil War onwards, or slightly before then, the majority, they're the natural governors. They've got the money, they've got the contacts in the Carolinas, they've got the settlements at the Chesapeake, they've got the wealth. But everything Charles II does bars them from power and drives them underground. So Biddeford is really a seething microcosm of all the stuff, good, bad and indifferent, that's happening in Restoration Society. If you listen to Dan Snow's history, we're talking about the last witch trials and executions in England. More after this. Hello, if you're enjoying this podcast, then I know you're going to be fascinated by the new episodes of the History Hit Warfare podcast, from the Napoleonic battles and Cold War confrontations to the Normandy landings and 9-11. We reveal new perspectives on how war has shaped and changed our modern world. I'm your host, James Rogers, and each week, twice a week, I team up with fellow historians, military veterans, journalists, and experts from around the world to bring you inspiring leaders. If the crossroads had fallen, then what Napoleon would have achieved is he would have severed the communications between the Allied force and the Prussian force 
and there wouldn't have been a Waterloo. It would have been as simple as that. Revolutionary technologies. The time the weapons were tested, there was this perception of great risk and great fear during the arms race that meant that these countries disregarded these communities' health and well-being to pursue nuclear weapons instead. And war-defining strategies. It's as though the world is incapable of finding a moderate light presence. It always wants to either swamp the place in trillion dollar wars or it wants to have nothing at all to do with it. And in relation to a country like Afghanistan, both approaches are catastrophic. Join us on the History Hit Warfare podcast, where we're on the front line of military history. Join us this month on Gone Medieval from History Hit. I'm Matt Lewis. And I'm Eleanor Yanaga. This April, dive into our special miniseries. With the help of leading experts, we're tracing the foundations of England by exploring the country's most powerful Anglo-Saxon kingdoms. We'll be looking at Northumbria, Mercia and Wessex, as well as the rulers and their councils who helped shape a nation. Make sure to get every episode by listening and following Gone Medieval from History Hit, wherever you get your podcasts. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life? Aura frames are beautiful. Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. It's super easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving an Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. And also remember, when you're using messaging apps, they shrink the photos. You cannot print those out. You cannot blow them up. This is high-quality imagery going to one of the most important people in your life. The Aura app is super easy to set up. It takes about two minutes, and you're going to love it. There's free unlimited storage, add unlimited photos and videos, and invite as many people as you want to a frame. Right now, Aura has got a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A-Frames.com. Use code Dan Snow at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. Devon, it was all going on back then. It was unbelievable. So tell me, she gets put on trial. How's that go? Well, the trial goes incredibly badly. One of the problems is we've got three pamphlets that deal with the women's sad fates and a ballad 
and the three pamphlets are based really around the pre-trial interrogations of the women that are sent up to London from Biddeford. The actual trial records don't survive, but we do have an account by Roger North. We have a letter from his brother, who was one of the judges in the court, that he sends to the Secretary of State. So we have a pretty good idea of what happened. And essentially, we tend to think of trials like modern trials. We tend to think that people get a fair share in a defending counsel. But when you look at the assize papers in Essex, they were taking 20, 30 cases a day. So some of these trials for witchcraft could conceivably have been heard in under half an hour, in 20 minutes. I'm quite sure that Temperance Lloyd's first trial in 1671 was over and done within about five or ten minutes, because on that occasion she had the sense to deny everything. On this occasion, though, they've already admitted it to the authorities in Biddeford. Witnesses are brought in, the women compound their problems because they all fall out and they start blaming one another. And they're still blaming each other on the steps of the scaffold, sadly. So they're convicted, but really the story could have gone very differently. It was in the power of the judge, it was in the power of the Secretary of State to commute the punishment, as increasingly happened from the 1680s up until the repeal of the Witchcraft Acts in the 1730s. But this time it doesn't happen, and it doesn't happen because the women were friendless. Absolutely nobody spoke for them. On top of that, their poverty, their age, and the fact that the Monmouth Rebellion was teetering out there. So when Lord North writes to the Secretary of State, he writes what is an incredibly duplicitous letter. He says, we know witchcraft's rubbish basically, but it's on the statute book, so we've got to go along with the letter of the law. If you don't convict these women, there will be terrible riots because the mob's blood is up against them. I really don't want to have us losing control of Exeter. They've already been at my coach with petitions and rows. They've already been punches exchanged outside the castle. One of the unfortunate things that happened was the the coaches of the two judges, Raymond and North, suddenly stopped on the drawbridge outside the castle and wouldn't move. And one of the stories that circulated amongst the mob was that actually the witches had been able to magic the horses to a standstill to pervert the trial. So all these things are going on. So North writes and says, really for the public good, really to stop Monmouth's people, these women as a sad necessity of state have to go to the gallows. And that's precisely what happens. Wow, that's amazing. They knew this was sort of archaic. Except it, it was a very modern phenomenon. It's that terrible thing people say, oh, very medieval. But in fact, it was very contemporary for them. It's incredibly modern because the Anglican Church, the Tories are driving this. Glanville's books that are published, the Archbishop of Canterbury's thundering, and this brings us back to religion as being one of the motors, against different views about God. God has to be ever-present in your daily life. So there's a whole reactionary wave that's hitting. And we've got people like Judge Raymond and North, who are too weak to stand against it. Really, luckily, by the 1690s, 1700s, you get somebody like Sir John Holt, who is the kind of hero of the day, who not only passes rulings in court that help to ameliorate slavery, he stops single-handedly slavery being imported into England. He 
cracks down on a standing army, on absolutism, on the military getting too big for themselves, but he also totally turns round the use of the statutes on witchcraft. What he actually does is he acquits because the evidence is fraudulent, and that's the big change in the law. That's what enables people to go free, because he looks at these cases and just says, this is all made up, and he actually gets people for contempt of court. Famously, he breaks a London apprentice who terrorised a poor old woman in Southwark. So we have our villains in the terrible story of witchcraft, but there are one or two heroes as well. So that's why the witch hunts stopped. Could they have spread? I mean, we see sometimes these hunts, well, obviously famously in Salem in New England, but they seem to have a kind of a pandemic effect. Well, hunts do snowball. If you look at the Salem outbreak, who are they talking to? They're talking to their family and relations and their business partners who are all in England and are from the West Country and are from the East where the two pandemics happen. So people like Winthrop are reading all this new trial literature. One of the villains of the piece in the Biddeford story is a guy called the Reverend Han, and Han was out to make his own name and his fame as a witch hunter, effectively, and he's actually actively looking to fire up, and I do use the word fire correctly in this case, a big witch hunt in Scotland. The fact it doesn't really happen, there's an outbreak at Paisley a little bit later in the 1690s, is really the fact that he blows his hand on the scaffold. He tries to get a final confession out of Temperance Lloyd that might have made his name as the sort of detector of witchcraft. And at that point, for the first time, she's enough sense to say no and run rings round him. And that really does break his reputation. So there's the potential all the way through this period for the witch hunts to really get going again. Anytime you've got a minority, anytime you've got people who are a bit different, anytime you've got imbalances in wealth and power, you're wide open to this kind of stuff, I'm afraid. What's the legacy of these women? Obviously, they're the last to be hanged. Was it regarded as a miscarriage of justice at the time, or did people come along, as you say, in later years, not necessarily inspired by them, but just by the ridiculousness of witch hunts? Well, it takes a long time for attitudes to change over the witches and the witch hunts and the Biddeford witches. So they're uniformly reviled in their own day and for really a hundred years afterwards. When Watkins writes his history of Biddeford in the time of the French Revolutionary Wars, he talks about Biddeford still being a place of witches. There are accounts in the local press of people being suspected as witches in the Victorian period. So this legacy lasts and rumbles. Of course, the women themselves, when they were cut down from the gallows, then denied not only their life in this world, but their life in the next world. And this is one of the most insidious things about witch hunts, because their bodies go into quicklime. That's why witches were burned as well in Scotland and Germany. If you don't have a physical body to resurrect, how can you be resurrected in the Last Judgment? So the punishments meted out were so terrible because they denied an afterlife to suspected witches. So for about a hundred years after, the three women of Biddeford get a really bad time. There's even a guide to the West Country I came across in researching the book written in the 1940s that holds that actually witch belief had something in it. 
It's only really gradually with the full impact of the European Enlightenment, however halting that might have been, and in the modern day that the Biddeford women are, well, they experience the most miraculous transformation of fortune. If you think that the people, the gentlemen who sentenced them, the Secretary of State, Leonine Jenkins, who ratified their death sentence, their names are hardly household words. Nobody's asking me to write a book about them or come on the history podcast and talk about them. But these three women of Biddeford, because their tragedy is so apparent and the wrongs done to them are so clear, have taken on an afterlife of their own. So in recent years, they've been memorialised in Rougemont Gardens in Exeter, in Biddeford on the town hall, bearing in mind that all the charges brought against them emanated from the town hall in the 1680s as a plaque in their memory. There's a rather good mural down an alley amongst the New Age shops down behind Exeter Castle, and their names, along with other witches, and we're coming up to the 40th anniversary now, were also a staple of the chants that the peace women sang beyond the wire at Green and Common. So the second wave of feminism has elevated the witch, and this is part of a long-standing legacy of the Enlightenment and the Romantic movement since the late 18th century, but it came to fruition really with a second wave of feminism in the late 60s, early 70s, where the witch who was reviled and seen as the worst thing you could ever be has become in the modern age a symbol of emancipated womanhood. And that's a remarkable, remarkable cultural shift in Western Europe, and one actually to be celebrated. That's why we know the witches today. So they failed to destroy them in the afterlife. Their names live on. You've touched on this, but why were they the last? Well, as far as we know, they were the last. There's a woman called Alice Molland who may have been hanged again in the West Country a few months later, but we don't know. There's no conclusive evidence about her, and there's no pamphlet evidence. And you think to yourself, well, if another witch was hanged, Witchcraft sells, you know, that's why people still write books about it and make movies, whatever. Why wasn't there a pamphlet about her? I think they were the last because the mentality of Western Europe was changing. God had shifted from being imminent, the kind of Old Testament God that if he doesn't like you, gets out of bed in the morning and fells you with a thunderbolt, to being transcendent. He didn't work in human affairs in the same way. So that is the big religious and societal shift. People aren't looking for signs and portents. Puritanism has become dissent, and it's lost its sting, and it's lost a lot of its fire, and has become more personal. If you think about the trajectory of the Quakers from being soldiers and religious radicals in the 1650s, they're pacifists and law-abiding chocolate manufacturers by the mid-18th. So society is shifting. You have to look at the judiciary as well. You have to look at the intellectual battles. So people like John Webster, who is a phenomenally interesting guy. He's a clergyman. He's a surgeon with the New Model Army. He is countercultural on absolutely every single level of his life. But he writes one of the great demolitions of witch theory. And the Royal Society hates him for it. He's absolutely unrespectable. But by the 1700s, after the Glorious Revolution, people are beginning to read Webster and not the Anglicans. 
Then you've got people like Sir John Holt, who really transformed the judiciary. He overturns the earlier rulings of a guy called Matthew Hale, who was the most famous lawyer of his time about 100 years before. But what Hale had done, and this again was an innovation, he'd said you can have spectral evidence as being valid in court. So if somebody says, as happened in Salem, the spirit is here in the court walking amongst me and I can see it, that is valid as evidence. Now, you think about that in a courtroom today as a piece of admissible evidence. Well, there's a demon over there sitting looking at me. You can't see it, but I can see it, and you have to believe it because I'm telling you. So what Holt does is he strips that out of the English judiciary and says that's inadmissible. And suddenly, I think the other thing is that the elites in society, the kind of people who are jurymen, the kind of people who are justices of the peace, are feeling a lot more secure. The number of women brought in on charges of witchcraft doesn't decline recognisably between 1650 and 1710. What does decline are the numbers who are taken up for prosecution, because judges and justices of the peace and juries are thankfully throwing it out and saying, we don't believe this thing is possible. It can't happen. But in doing that, and this is one of the reasons why witch belief persists, they have to be so brave that they're saying what we've got in the Bible and what we've got in classical sources from Greece and Rome where they believed in witches and these stories of Egyptian magicians, Moses and people changing their staves into snakes etc isn't true and that took an incredible amount of intellectual, moral and physical courage for a young generation coming to age after about 1660 to actually take to heart, and I think it's worth celebrating. I think we live in an age where we think of everything as having deep economic consequences or climate consequences, and it's always very interesting. I was talking about the outbreak of the Second World War, which over when actually sometimes it is just good old-fashioned opinion piece writing. Like, we've got to pay attention to culture, right? It still matters. Well, it was a culture war, if we can use that phrase. I think the three women of Biddeford were whipped up into one, but it was certainly a culture war that made them victims on account of their poverty and economic circumstance. And I think today it's sometimes fashionable to say that people can self-define. But what is palpably obvious in the case of the Biddeford witches is that that was something absolutely denied to them, that they had absolutely nothing going for them, and that's why they could be victimised. Well, thank you very much indeed for coming on and talking about that extraordinary last witch trial in England. Your book is called? It's called The Last Witches of England, and it's about the Biddeford Witches, and it's out with Bloomsbury on the 7th of October. Thank you very much, John. Good luck with it. Oh, thank you very much, Dan. It's been a real pleasure. Thanks so much. This part of the history of our country, all were gone and finished. Thanks, folks, for listening to this episode of Dan Stone's History. As I tell you all the time, I love doing these podcasts. They are the best thing I do professionally. I feel very lucky to have you listening to them. If you fancied giving them a rating and review, obviously the best rating review possible would be ideal. It makes a big difference to us. I know it's a pain, but we'd really, really be grateful. And if you want to listen to the other podcasts in our ever-increasing stable, don't forget we've got Susanna Lipscomb with Not Just the Tudors, that's flying high in the charts. 
We've got our medieval podcast, Gone Medieval, with the brilliant Matt Lewis and Kat Jarman. We've got The Ancients with our very own Tristan Hughes. And we've got Warfare as well, dealing with all things military. Please go and check those out wherever you get your pods. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Thank you for listening to this episode of Dan Snow's History. Please follow this show wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps us and you'll be doing us a big favour. Don't forget you can also listen to all of these podcasts ad-free and watch hundreds of TV documentaries when you subscribe at historyhit.com slash subscribe. As a special gift, you can also get your first three months for just £1 a month when you use code DANSNOW at checkout.